0: associate professor of law at Boston University. We'll be discussing his article, Regulatory Monitors, which was recently published in the Columbia Law Review. I'll add a link to that article in the show notes for today's episode. Rory, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. When we talk about regulators as lawyers, we tend to naturally, I think, focus on the roles of enforcement attorneys, the roles of uh, counsel who are developing regulations or other rulemaking or or allied professionals like accountants or economists. But you note in this article that that's only a a very thin layer of who regulators are uh, in terms of the personnel who staff agencies. Who might we be missing when we think about regulators, and what were you addressing along those lines in this article?
1: So the roots of this project are in my time at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And when I was imagining the role I might play in that agency in helping to set it up, I imagined being in, with the enforcement lawyers, bringing big banks to trial for predatory lending, or possibly in the rulemaking group, writing actual federal law. And when I got my assignment and it said Big Bank Supervision, which is the group that examines banks' records, the first thought that went through my mind was, I got put in accounting. And I wasn't the only one at that agency that had the basic sense that or at least a lack of understanding about what supervision was, and maybe an assumption that what supervision did wasn't very central to the law enforcement process. But as I and other lawyers began to learn what that group did, it soon became clear that they were going to have access to non-public information on a day-to-day basis. They were going to be inside banks learning what was going on, And pretty soon, all of the other groups really wanted access to the information that they had or some kind of working relationship that would enable them to benefit from that knowledge. And so my motivation in writing this article was really to encourage the kind of paradigm shift that I and other lawyers underwent to see supervision, which is a form of regulatory monitor, as a central part of the agency. And when I began to look into that role across other regulators, the 19 large regulators as defined by uh, the federal government, I soon began to realize that the the same kind of underappreciated role that bank examiners play at the CFPB and other uh, financial regulators is also a, a big part of what the regulatory state does elsewhere.
0: So you mentioned the role of, of regulatory monitors. Could you discuss that as a role that's distinct from the personnel who are designing and, and shepherding the rulemakings or who are doing investigations or bringing enforcement actions for violations of the rules? Uh, you know, what is monitoring uh, as, as you construe it and where does that fit into what the administrative state is doing uh, at these agencies?
1: Monitoring authority really enables agencies to regularly collect non-public information from firms without suspicion of wrongdoing. So where the lawyers, the enforcement lawyers, would typically collect information as part of the court process or after they suspect some business has done something wrong, the monitors are really, on a regular basis, kind of checking up, whether that's through report collection or actually going on-site to the business to go inside the factory and look for, this, um, this is actually from one of the exam manuals, look for black rot, yellow rot, white rot, making sure there's no insects uh, under the, the hood in, in the labs where they make food or pharmaceuticals. I, and indeed, I, I risk putting you to sleep if I go into too great a detail about what a lot of these people do, probably like any job out there. Uh, But I've read through a lot of their manuals, which are hundreds of pages long, and they can be very technical. You know, the FAA, the flight inspectors need to look for signals that are greater than 48 degrees and 90 hertz direction from the glide scope cross pointer value and so on. But all of those detail-oriented technical aspects of the job, I think, shouldn't be taken as... uh, Inconsistent with the very important larger role they play in law enforcement and policymaking because these people also have the ability to impose sanctions and and play a really meaningful role in policing businesses.
0: In this light, monitors are a form of proactive regulation. What's some of the history of of the emergence of this type of regulator? And and why has it emerged in in some industries rather than just relying on firms to self-comply with the rules? And if they don't, uh, then there's the opportunity to subpoena their information and potentially bring uh, an enforcement action against them.
1: So the history of regulatory monitoring is really the history of failed regulation, failed self-regulation, at least. You know, Upton Sinclair's you know, novel, The Jungle, provokes public outcry by graphically exposing health violations such as vermin infestations in the American meatpacking industry. Then lawmakers respond by charging the U.S. Department of Agriculture with inspecting facilities nationwide, Uh, Or after the subprime mortgage crisis helped to push the economy to the edge of a cliff in 2008, Congress created a new agency, the the CFPB, uh, with the first federal mandate to routinely examine mortgage servicers and payday lenders and others. Or when the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded and sank off the Gulf Coast in 2010, arguably the the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history, the Department of Interior dissolved the responsible agency and created three in its place. And uh, since doubled the number of offshore energy inspectors, and so the history of this incredibly large workforce that today regularly monitors businesses is really the result of these and many other kind of catastrophes throughout history that prompted Congress to make changes. That, and those changes always included, or usually included, some kind of substantive legal powers as well. Um, but more often than not, the monitoring authority came after there had already been some kind of ex-post ability for the agency to go in and fine or hold the business accountable in court, And then Congress said, whoa, we already had these laws on the books, now we need a way for regulators to actually be able to know what's going on in advance so they can get ahead of the problem.
0: I think this topic and this paper really touches on a lot of different areas of of the law and different fields of law. And this being the Business Scholarship Podcast, I wanted to ask about the powers that regulatory monitors have to make sure that businesses follow the rules. And what those powers might mean for, for business operating under the, the shadow of these potential sanctions.
1: So one way to think about the tie between this article and business law is to consider the compliance elements of it. So Sean Griffith has this quote that I, I mentioned in the piece about the compliance department has emerged in many firms as the co-equal of the legal department. And that's true both in terms of the number of employees and in terms of the compliance department reporting often to the CEO directly. And so the the model that I offer here, the kind of configuration, the structural architecture of regulatory monitors, is to see them as really managing the compliance departments within businesses. So in other words, the firm's compliance department essentially serves as regulatory monitors agents. And so if you're looking at the the legal framework uh, within which businesses, especially large businesses, operate today, that inevitably includes the compliance department. And it's part of the the structure of large businesses today for those compliance departments to be in regular dialogue with regulatory monitors. And thus, understanding regulatory monitors is, in some regards, a way of understanding the the modern uh, business organization, really. And to answer your question about power, so the the designers of agencies could have simply tasked monitors with information collection and report writing and then asked them to hand over that information and maybe insights based on it over to others like lawyers. But at most large regulators, monitors have substantial power and discretion in terms of what enforcement avenue to take. So they can decide to impose a fine. In many instances, they can negotiate a settlement, in some cases, uh, multi-million dollar settlements. The Federal Reserve examiners, which are are their, their monitors, imposed over $2 billion in fines in the recent year. At banking agencies such as OSHA, the inspectors really, to a great extent, decide when to involve lawyers in the process. And many regulatory monitors the enforcement process from beginning to end without a lawyer ever becoming involved. And it's also worth mentioning that they can revoke uh, businesses' freedom. So they can shut down dangerous workplaces or factories or offshore drilling operations. They can revoke bank licenses. And, And they serve as gatekeepers for many markets. For example, making sure that every piece of chicken we eat was not tainted. They actually have Regulatory monitors, inspectors, who are looking at every piece of, of chicken that comes into the, the commercial process in the United States. Also, inspections can be burdensome. So the prospect simply of having more inspections or more reports to submit to the regulator is costly and uh, scary for a lot of businesses, and thus gives the regulatory monitors greater power. And so as Malcolm Feely said of misdemeanors in criminal law, the process is the punishment, uh, at least if the agency so chooses.
0: One of the things, one of the concepts that you discussed in this article that I thought was really interesting is the idea of common law rulemaking. I wonder if you could describe what that is, what it means for firms uh, and in the regulatory process. And I, I wonder, too, if there are any potential concerns with um, with having a rulemaking process that in a way pushes rulemaking down below the level of folks who are presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed
1: Yes. So I don't go deep into this area in the article, but it's clear that monitors shape policy. So information is the lifeblood of governance, and regulatory monitors are the gatekeepers of inf- information in the agency. And they get to see what happens behind closed doors, and so they're the industry experts, in a sense, within most large regulators. And as a result, they influence policy because we live in an era of constricted rulemaking and monitors are often faced with applying vague or outdated law. They may provide valuable perspectives on those who are writing rules. But more to to the point of your question, they also produce inspection reports, which other businesses later then refer back to, like a lawyer would a prior judicial ruling. So they might say, hey, FDA, why are you finding us for not having the insect hood when the Memphis branch of the FDA simply gave another business a warning for the same type of thing? And so that's the way that these inspection reports can produce a kind of common law of monitoring in the absence of, of clear rules that went through the formal process.
0: As we've discussed, regulatory monitors have just enormous sway in many regulated industries. How do you hold that power accountable? Because it is – pretty localized. It is sort of at the individual bank level. It is at the individual chicken factory, for example. How do we hold that power accountable and ensure that monitors are serving the public interest uh, and being protected from various harms? And that might be financial harms uh, in the case of the financial industry, or it might be the, the quality and the health of our food and, and other industries. How do we hold monitors accountable and Serving that interest or those interests, and also the public interest in economic efficiency, innovation, growth, etc.
1: So unlike with litigation and rulemaking, monitoring-based decisions are largely unobservable by the public, often unreviewable by courts, and explicitly excluded by the Administrative Procedure Act, actually. So the regulatory monitor function can be more easily ramped up or deconstructed by the president, interest groups, and agency directors— but it also goes both ways, right? So we need to figure out how they're not captured by industry or how to prevent them from being captured by industry and how we can assure that they don't abuse their power. And for these projects, these important kind of design projects, there are traditional tools such as transparency some websites post violations that monitors uncover, and so we can learn, for example, that in 2014, oil inspectors sh- shut down certain offshore Exxon operations 13 times, or that on a specific day in 2017, OSHA inspections of Amazon warehouses uncovered serious worker health violations leading to a $5,975 fine. That's an actual, <laughs> actual posting. Or that FDA inspectors caught Walmart selling tobacco to minors in Memphis, Tennessee. And so these transparency mechanisms can allow external parties to get a sense of what monitors are doing and whether or not their activity is increasing or decreasing over time, for example. But transparency has its limits with regulatory monitors in part because a lot of the information they have access to is non-public and cannot be released publicly because doing so would be harmful to the business. And that confidentiality is really important in regulatory monitors' ability to continue to gain access to uh, private information. So there are other mechanisms such as requiring a paper trail of the regulatory monitors. The EPA, for example, some, some environmental statutes require the inspector to issue a report before leaving the factory. And in that report, there are the findings of the potential violations and so on. And so what that means is that when the inspector then goes back to headquarters, if there's uh, an agency leader, for example, that or a, a boss even, that would want to kind of cover up some of those activities or, or be too lenient on a business, there's at least a paper trail in place that is going to make it harder to say later that they weren't covering up legal violations. So there are a whole host of kinds of uh, transparency and private paper trail mechanisms that we could design. There are also some accountability mechanisms that move beyond transparency, such as appeals processes. Regulators are all over the map in terms of how they design appeals processes for monitors, and it's indeed somewhat surprising that this isn't more standardized. But some regulators, for example, will have the appeal if you disagree with a regulatory monitor's opinion and fine or whatever it may be, the appeal will go to another monitor. So in other words, one of the the peers of the individual who may have given you the fine, or maybe that regulatory monitor's boss, which doesn't really sit well with procedural justice in that the person handling the appeal would ideally be a little bit more objective and removed. And there are some agencies that do move the appeals process outside of the regulatory monitoring function in the agency. So that's one mechanism, designing better appeals processes to enable business to get a second set of eyes when they feel like they've been mistreated. Also, resource allocation isn't something that legal scholars necessarily often think of in terms of accountability. But I I see the allocation of people within the agency, the number of lawyers and monitors in particular, as playing a potential accountability role what I mean by this is that it's better to have both a good number of lawyers and a good number of monitors in an agency than to have it be too lopsided in one direction. So if you have too many monitors, the risk is that these monitors are always within the businesses, getting to know those businesses and maybe too close to businesses. And you don't have the lawyerly outside perspective to come to bear on the monitor's activities. And then there are some organizational design factors that help once you have your set of lawyers and monitors in place. So my hypothesis is that agencies get into trouble when these groups are too disconnected. And so you want the lawyers to have some kind of forced points of interaction with the the monitors. There are questions about how you design the interactions between the two groups. So things like mandating visibility into the other group decisions and activities can help. One example that I think is really illuminating is that of the EPA, which doesn't organizationally separate out the inspection function. So in other words, in some places... Monitors are in one part of the agency, in their own office, in their own part of the organizational chart, and enforcement lawyers are in a a totally different part. The EPA kind of mixes them together, and so once inspectors identify anything beyond a minor violation, they work side by side with the lawyers, and that. Collaboration means that both engineers and lawyers—engineers are the inspectors—both engineers and lawyers often are involved in deciding on sanctions, negotiating with the firm, and even co-authoring legal briefs. And consequently, each meaningful regulatory monitor decision is peer-reviewed by someone trained within a professional code of ethics for the administration of justice— and by someone familiar with the science and industrial organization. So, these kinds of processes between the two groups can also provide accountability.
0: So, in this article, you provide a a descriptive account of the role of regulatory monitors, and you have a follow-up article on some of the prescriptive and and policy implications for this topic. Could you maybe give our listeners a little bit of a, a preview of that paper?
1: Yes. So, regulatory monitors was more of a descriptive piece. But it left me with a set of normative questions. For example, I found that in 15 of the 19 large regulators, regulatory monitors play an important role in law enforcement. And 15 of the 19 agencies rely really heavily on regulatory monitors. And that left me wondering, what about those four agencies, in particular, the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communications Commission? Why don't they rely as heavily on monitoring? And so in my follow-up paper, which is uh, The Missing Regulatory State, Monitoring Businesses in an Age of Surveillance, I take up that question and ask why we have these holdouts, really, that don't rely on regulatory monitors as heavily. And that led me to the question of why the regulatory state has, in the first place, decided to so pervasively depend on regulatory monitoring authority. And so in that paper, I go through the set of factors that would push lawmakers to authorize monitoring, such as the need to protect the public and prevent harm, information asymmetries that leave regulators otherwise in the dark, and also a set of countervailing considerations such as privacy and regulatory burden. And so I take that framework and those mix of factors and I apply it to online platforms today and ask why we don't monitor Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other large technology companies. And that inquiry reveals some interesting tensions between the modern era of surveillance in which really much of our activities are visible to businesses and ultimately to the government if, if it wants access for, say, a criminal investigation or for national security purposes, and yet why, despite all of that intense personal surveillance, the government has very little visibility into what businesses, and in particular, those same businesses that enable individual surveillance, are doing. And I think one of the, the complications here is that we live in an era in which we're very concerned about privacy. And so this traditional monitoring function, which in the past was already a little bit resisted by industry, of course, and probably the general public, just in the sense of we don't want unnecessary intrusion into the private sphere, now has this additional complication of most businesses today, most large businesses have a tremendous store of information about all of us, about people, individuals, the customers. And so people are worried potentially that Regulators would get a hold of that, or they don't really think about regulators different from other agencies like the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, and so on, what are kind of crime agencies. And so the problem becomes that what is an effort to hold businesses accountable to protect people might be seen as potentially threatening individuals' liberty or privacy. And I also think that This tension provides a bit of a pretext for those who would argue against deregulation anyway to weaken the argument for regulatory monitoring. And as I have said before, because regulatory monitoring is such a core part of the regulatory state, the ability to oppose regulatory monitoring really risks being a huge obstruction to regulation overall.
0: And I will include a link to that article as well in the show notes. So if listeners enjoyed this conversation and the regulatory monitors piece, uh, that's something that should definitely be on their radar as well. Right. what takeaways would you offer from this article for listeners who might be academics or might be in a rulemaking or, or policy or uh, enforcement regulatory role? Regulatory monitors have touched
1: many different parts of our lives. By law, they're required to lay eyes on every single chicken we've ever eaten a piece of in the United States to prevent us from becoming potentially fatally ill. By examining banks, they move the needle in some direction as to the likelihood that a financial crisis devastates our retirement. Their inspections of factories appear to lower pollutants in the air we breathe that scientists now believe accelerate dementia. And yet, despite this important expansive role in our lives and in the administration of the law the group of people within it, federal agencies who monitor, has remained largely ignored. And while we would never tolerate the nationwide closing of police departments, or even just the absence of police departments in the first place, it's far more feasible for deregulatory pressures or a government shutdown to grind this important function to a halt. And so the biggest takeaway for me that I'd like people to have is the awareness of the role that this group plays with respect to agencies that don't currently engage in regulatory monitoring. I think it's worth taking a fresh look at why not at agencies that maybe are too heavily reliant on regulatory monitors. I think it's worth thinking about accountability mechanisms such as appeals processes or a second look by lawyers or other groups And more broadly, there's just valuable work to be done in thinking through how to design administrative agencies and statutes in light of the fact that at its core, much of administrative power lies largely out of sight in the hands of what is perhaps best, but also a bit controversially described as regulatory police.
0: Our guest today has been Rory Van Loo, Associate Professor of Law at Boston University. We've discussed his recent article, Regulatory Monitors, which was published in the Columbia Law Review. I'll include a link to that article in the show notes for today's episode. Rory, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. I enjoyed it.